This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Lucky Charm, just ask Newcastle, and Rory Smith, Bad Juju, ask everybody else. Um, now, we have started without preamble for a reason uh, this week, and forgive us if it appears a little melodramatic. We don't intend it to be. But we have some news to impart of the more serious nature. You, like us, have been without chinch for a number of weeks now, and we've hopefully been sensitively vague about the reasons why. But we wanted to let you know that uh, a close family member of his is very ill right now, um, and he is needed currently and for a little while longer to provide the love and support that you'd expect that he would. It means, of course, that he will be unable to be with us for some time. And therefore, we've taken the decision out of respect to him, Nikki, and their family, and also to those who have parted with their hard-earned money, to postpone the live show in London. Uh, we don't believe that those with tickets would consider the three of us anywhere near the value for money that we would be if Chinch was alongside us. So we hope that you understand that it wouldn't be right to do it without him for those reasons. You'll also remember uh, that Nikki's family lost a loved one only very recently and Chinch wasn't with us for a period of time then as well. So you'll appreciate how much of a tough time they are all going through. Those that have bought tickets for the Courtyard Theatre, firstly, thank you. And they will remain valid for the postponed show at a date that we are not choosing now for reasons already expressed and also something called Omicron, uh, making the next few weeks a little difficult to predict. If you need a refund, uh, there is one available and it's via the same website that you bought the tickets originally. But obviously we'd encourage you to hold on to the ones that you have already purchased as if it gave you entry to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory so that we are able to eventually see your smiley faces. We will not be eliminating you one by one. And really it wouldn't be an SPM landmark if we didn't reflect it out of sequence anyway. So the fifth anniversary show in London will follow SPM 100 and SPM 250 in being at a completely irrelevant time. Uh, but we will be doing it, all being well, the uncontrollables, and we thank you uh, for your understanding. So the live show in London has been postponed. That was more dramatic than when football matches get cancelled around about Christmas and New Year because of frozen pitches. You should do the, You should do the announcements on the radio for that, Hugh. I thought it was almost as dramatic as when all of football got cancelled full stop, which is Mikel Arteta caught coronavirus. <laughs> it had that same sort of air of, of, of inevitability. But obviously, our, our, yeah, our love and um, prayers and such and thoughts go to, um, go to Chinch and all of his family. And yeah, we are looking forward to doing the live show, but we should, we should do it properly. We should do it with Chinch because let's all be honest, he provides the best bits. He's the big ticket item, isn't he, yeah. to be honest? Yeah, they, people are not coming to see us. We are the gateway drug to the hard stuff, and the hard stuff is chinch. It's basically, a, a, a SPM Live is essentially an hour and a half of clock watching, and then chinch does something ridiculous. That is that is kind of what the... Without, without Mr. Darcy reimagined as Mick McCarthy, what yeah. is the show? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like when you go and see like a legendary act, and they insist on performing all of their new material. Yes, we are the new material yeah. <laughs> that you've got to sit through to get to the hits. Yes, Chinch, Chinch is the greatest hits and we are the period at which they announce that they're going to do their new one and everybody goes either to the bar or indeed to the toilets. Um, so thank you very much indeed once again for your understanding. Uh, we, we are devastated for Chinch and his family and that is the, very much the backdrop into making a slightly ugly practical decision but we hope you understand why we're doing it. Um, so we move on. The food is... Well, it's not food that I've got now, but it's food that I have eaten. So uh, some friends of ours invited us round uh, the other day for a, like a late Hanukkah dinner. Ooh. It may, may or may not have been the last or the first day of Hanukkah. I'm not entirely clear that they wouldn't necessarily be described as the most sort of devout followers of the Jewish faith. Um, 
but it was related to Hanukkah in some way. And my our friend cooked, and he, he cooked a, a beef brisket, which was extraordinary. But he also cooked potato latkes. Now, I, I'm relatively well, you know, I'm quite, I've got quite a broad, broad palate. I like a lot of different types of cuisine. But I, I was devastated, de- genuinely devastated to learn that I had made it to almost 40 without eating what is essentially my perfect food. <laughs> and it, it made me, it's made me reflect on basically a life wasted, that I, I've been sort of walking <laughs> around the planet not eating lectures. When I, when I could have been eating lectures. So it was a really nice evening, but I, I came away with this sense of sort of incredibly ruminative re- regret at all, all, all the lectures not eaten, all the, those other people who've been eating lectures all the time, and, and I haven't. And it's, it's just made me really kind of reflect on the, the nature of, of what I've been eating. Are you planning to convert? I would definitely, I would convert <laughs> to Judaism for lectures, but I don't think you have to be Jewish to eat them. Do you, uh, as a result of the evening, do you now uh, have a recipe that means that you can reproduce those latkes? Because I imagine latkes are so ubiquitous in terms of getting versions of them that you might be disappointed by the other versions. So you need to reproduce this latke on every single occasion. I think the easiest thing is Dan has proved that he can make them. So I'm just going to get him to cook me loads. <laughs> batch latkes. Yeah, I might, I'm, and we might see if we can do like a deal where I pay for a batch of latkes and he can sort of deliver them over the fence. And the football is, in an effort to provide some sort of compensation for the lack of audience participation provided by the uh, postponement of the live show, we are, for the next two weeks, doing two subjects suggested directly by listeners. Whether they bought tickets for London, I have no idea. If they did, they can hold on to them and we'll see them at some point in the future. Yes, we are turning an unfortunate necessity into something of a content generation feature. This week... What is style? Well, that's the Brick Tamlin version of a series of questions posed in an email we will bring to you later about a team's style and identity. So that is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Here's an email from Richard Cook, and it is called Bone to Pick. Dear White Ball, Yellow Ball, Orange Ball and No Ball. Is that a snooker reference? It might be a snooker reference. There's a bit of cricket in there. There's this, a snowy football reference in there as well. I would like to disagree with Rory. No, move We spent I, five years learning from that mistake. Come on, you should. You people should know better. Uh, from this is from SPM two five seven. It has been rumbling around in his mind for a couple of weeks, and it was about international football being more exciting than we thought. Now he said, "Did Rory that no one enjoys watching England play, and it's boring." I love watching England play, says Richard, much more than club football. I find myself counting down to the next England game. If it's a friendly, a qualifier or a tournament, it's all the same. I rarely feel that level of excitement with the club game and do not understand that level of disdain international football gets. Club football gets in the way of international football. That is from Richard Cook. Rory, would you uh, like to now disagree with Richard? Absolutely not. No, Richard is entitled to, to find whatever he finds enjoyable. Enjoyable. This is, a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a rich tapestry life. It's a beautiful, bountiful mosaic of different different kind of tastes and delights and and that's that's fine I'm, I'm on board with Richard if he if he looks forward to England 10 San Marino nil <laughs> then then good for him Richard that sounded just... more sarcastic than I wanted it to be it's fine it's fine he's not disagreeing with me we just have different views that's that's not a problem he's leading the way towards the 
enlightenment that we were discussing in the episode. I, I don't know why he's, he's railed so much. We were very much discussing the concept that international football had started to feel as though football back to its purest form. So I, I, I think Richard is quite right to, to enjoy watching England play. Maybe not away from home against San Marino, but at most other times. Richard, in real time, even though this is impossible, but just go along with it with me. Richard has, in real time, responded to that assertion by saying, I also don't like potato latkes. So, uh... Well, in that case, I think, in, I think in that case, we can we can just dismiss anything Richard says. OK, good. I'm glad about that. Here is Harry Eckersley. Hi, all. My first time listening to the podcast and what a way to start. I have to say my favourite England international, though, remains Jay Bothride, who somehow now finds himself without a club. That, that, is, that is a little harsh. Uh, but welcome, Harry. He continues, really enjoyed the discussion about Rangnick, Ralph Rangnick and English football's identity, which is, of course, SPM 259. I noticed, though, that all of the discussion centred on either tactics, coaching or players, i.e. the on-field controllables, which no doubt Rangnick is a master of and will have no trouble implementing in English football. An unhelpful phrase, admittedly, but what if when Paul Merson refers to the English game, he is also talking about the culture that surrounds it, the intense, overblown media and fan scrutiny, our propensity to judge success by trophies alone rather than incremental improvements in performance, our schadenfreudian desire to see managers sacked and humiliated, an incredibly congested fixture list, the weird hero worship of former and current players, a desire to put the brand above all else, United specifically, nonsense faux culture wars over things like ketchup, he says, followed by ellipses. You may disagree entirely and argue that the above list is not unique to English football either. I certainly am no expert, but I am intrigued to know your thoughts as to whether this may prove to be a bigger stumbling block to an ideologue like Rangnick. That is from Harry Eckersley. That, that is actually, well, that's definitely not what Paul Merson meant. That is 100% far too sophisticated a thought for Paul Merson. <laughs> But it is a really good point. A lot of those points are, are held in common by football across certainly the major leagues, and I, I would imagine even in in smaller leagues. You know, I'm sure in in Holland or Belgium, if a, if a big club is struggling, I'm sure that the newspapers are full of, you know, why are Anderlecht so crap and stuff. But I do I do think there's a there's a, a there's more than a kernel of truth in that. That the main thing being probably that we have no tolerance for ideas in England. I think it's changing to an extent. But if Randit won his first game, which will help. And they've got United have got a really kind fixture list until March, I think. But so I'm sure, you know, I'm sure if he to be honest, if he makes no difference whatsoever on the pitch, they will probably get quite a lot of points between now and March just because they've got so many good players. If he can make them more organised, they'll get even more points. I think where he might struggle is if he hits a bad run of form, the thing that probably is different between Germany and here is that it will not just his competence will not just be called into question, but his entire belief system. Because we we will, there is a there is a mood in in England particularly. I think that doesn't apply certainly in Italy and Germany, possibly even in Spain, where every single manager is held as an avatar not just for who you know who they are and their own level of ability, but for everything they stand for. Mm. So if United you know have a have a rough January, the the pressure on Rangnick will be not only to prove that he can pull the team out of the slump, but to validate to validate vindicate and justify his beliefs. And there will be an immediate call for for returning to some sort of I don't know prehensile. <laughs> like anti-diluvian British va- English values that he won't really understand and don't really mean anything, but that that probably is the one to me. Yeah, maybe that is that is a valid difference between England and a lot of other football cultures. D- did you did you see that Tim Sherwood is not a listener? 
Yes, yeah, so he, yeah. he is our latest uh, trigger merchant yes. uh, with, with what he said. Um, I was crushed to... to discover that. Yes. I think it was, it was Seb Stafford Blore, I think, on Twitter, who made the point, and it's, it's right, it's a really obvious one, I'm not, but it's not one you see made very often, that, that I think Sherwood basically said people, you know, people don't know very much about Randnick. I don't know very much about him. Yeah, that's what he and, meant. When he says and, people don't know very yeah, much about him, yeah. what he meant was I, I don't know very much about him. And Seb said, well, why not? But instead of instead of going on the, it's actually a damning indictment of media culture, but instead of going on the radio or the TV or whatever and saying, you know, we don't know very much about him, so who is he? Why not learn? Yeah. Why not? There's, there's yeah. plenty of material out there, some of it very engagingly written, about <laughs> Ralph Randnick's <laughs> background. You you could go and find out about him, and if you go and find out about him, and then and then you say, well, look, I think he's too much of an ideologue, and he requires a structure that basically bows down to him, and he wants to have his his influence on every sphere of the club. I'm not sure whether that can work at an institution like United. That is a perfectly valid opinion. There is nothing wrong with that opinion, but it's not enough to say, I you know, yeah. we don't know very much about him, so he probably he probably won't work. And, and, and why do we keep giving? Why do we give a platform to people that seem to celebrate? Their ignorance. Yeah. That drives me wild. Well, that's, it's not just football that uh, has, yeah. that, has that burden to bear. It's, it's, it's a great Trumpism, isn't it? To say people, people didn't know that this was like this. Was it? No, you didn't. And you're just making it sound like everybody didn't. And so therefore your yeah. response is, is, is mitigated by that. Um, Morris Cole is our listener that sounds like he's in at least his 50s, but is in fact a teenager. And he has a, a, a different angle on the Manchester United Ralph Ragnick story. Morris, ha- is, Morris is quite a cool name. Robin Cowan's little boy is called Morris, my match of the day colleague. Are we talking Morris M.A., like Morris Edu, or Florian Maurice, or are we talking Morris as in minor? No, we're talking the former, M-A-U-R-I-C-E. Okay. Well, in that case, he's very much um, uh, ahead of the game in terms of being very cool, like Robin's uh, child, uh, but very much behind it in every other generation. Uh, But I do stand corrected nonetheless. To Andy and three Garys, Neville, Pallister and Southgate. I haven't emailed in a while, but I'm still very much a regular regular listener and you remain the cornerstone of my podcast schedule every week. Spotify Wrapped informs me that I have listened to a total of 3,156 minutes and 50 episodes of SPM in 2021. That seems like quite a lot. A continued thanks to you all for keeping me sane during what was an incredibly stressful first term at university. I'm writing with regard to the point that Rory made in SPM 259 about the no, interim not, appointment of Ralph Rangnick at Manchester United. I put a buffer between these two just so you didn't think that everybody was on your case. Uh, referring to the fact that Rangnick has influenced, at least to some degree, three of the best managers in the Premier League, Klopp, Tuchel and Guardiola, I then thought that Rory would go on to say that Rangnick's godfather status in world football is the reason that he was hired as Manchester United manager. He didn't, but I thought this might be an interesting train of thought to explore. You have spoken before on the podcast about how Manchester United has run like a world-class business rather than a world-class football club. And I think this is another example of good business. By appointing Rangnick, Man United own the godfather of modern football. This is a great marketing brag, primarily, and feeds the arrogant ethos that Manchester United are the biggest club in the world. I think this exact ethos is holding the club back, though. They make business decisions with an arrogant mindset, and in doing so, ignore those which might be more savvy or beneficial. They bought Jadon Sancho and re-signed Cristiano Ronaldo because we are Manchester United, and not, for example, Goretzka and Camavinga, even though they may well have proven more suitable, if slightly less mainstream, options. If they were to behave in the transfer market like a lower-level club, that which they are, he really doesn't like Manchester United, does Morris, then they would make smarter business. Instead, they are stuck in the big club mindset, which limits them to only the biggest and most expensive names in world football. Thus, they forfeit savvy for glamour. 
Kind regards, Maurice Cole. P.S. A constitutional question for the panel. In theory, how many minutes of SPM listening per year would be rewarded with Buffalo status? Well, Maurice, might I just say that if you listen to 50 episodes of SPM in 2021 with about two episodes of the year to go, you're basically listening to just the content we provide. So you have not met that threshold, whatever it is. So hang on, he's listened to 3,000 minutes. Yes, which is 50 and, episodes. Which is 50 episodes, yeah. We do 52 yeah, episodes a year. Need more than that. Yeah, more than that. But thank you. You've got to li- have listened to a considerable portion of the back catalogue to to be to be a buffalo just by virtue of loyalty. I think. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And as a constitutional question goes, it's uh, it is well intentioned, oh, it's, but it's a valid been re- one. Been rejected. Yeah, summarily. no, it's that you don't. You, not all constitutional questions get you the answer you want. <laughs> it's not past the lower house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, and bear in mind that Chinch is very much in control of Buffalo status, so every, all of those decisions have yes. to wait until he gets back. Postponed. We need a quorum. Um, <laughs> it's a re- it's a really good point. I think the difficulty that all the all the big clubs have with behaving like small clubs in the transfer market, doing the savvy canny thing, is they can't because as soon as a selling club works out that it's either Manchester United or an intermediary acting on behalf of Manchester United involved the price goes up straight away. Yeah. And then there's the fact that they need players who are ready. And there is, there is to an extent, there is, there is a logic in the structure in the hierarchy of the transfer market where those teams at the, the elite level will pay an extra 20, 30 million pounds that they can afford to get a player who is finished. Not finished. Sorry, that's a bad, bad turn of phrase. Man United <laughs> the have finished couple, product. Yeah, Man United have bought a couple of finished players. But the... Um, the yeah, the, the, you know, they'll pay that extra premium to get players who are ready to play for them. Whereas if you're Leon or Villa, yeah, Villa's quite a good example. Ollie Watkins wasn't ready to play for a top four team when he was at Brentford. He needed to go to Villa to to kind of hone himself. And there is a possibility that in a, in a year or two's time, he will be ready to play for Liverpool or Chelsea or whoever. He couldn't have gone straight from Brentford to Chelsea because he wouldn't have played football. And everything that Maurice Cole says about Manchester United, you could apply to any number of giant clubs across the continent. Finally, from Graham Langlands, in response to the excerpt of Alan Shearer's recent Athletic article that we read out at this point of the show last week, Dear Tarquin, Tarquin, Roderick and Chunch, a quick note to say that humped is indeed a genuine way of describing a heavy defeat in the North East. Usage, and he says, do the accent, I dare you. I will not accept that dare. Did you see the match at the weekend, Bobby? I, Geordie, the tune got humped again. Uh, it's okay for you to not know this, being a fet southerners from the la da M62 corridor. Yours in sport, Graham, <laughs> who is in North Shields. Uh, Graham, thank you. I think a few people got in touch on Twitter as well, by which point I was able to then correct um, any assertions to the contrary um, on uh, Wednesday morning on the radio when uh, somebody said humped and then somebody else said what? And I said, no, 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 it's okay. Uh, well, 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 it isn't, it isn't, I would say. Well, it's okay for a certain certain element of the population, a certain dialect. I did, I did, I did Second Captains, an excellent podcast, not as good as this one, but an excellent podcast um, the other day. And Ken Early, who's among the best writers on football in the English language, said that someone had been ridden as, a, as an equivalent to humped, which is from the verb to ride, which the Irish use to mean things that we probably can't say on a family-friendly podcast. And and that I think that is how the Irish describe a heavy defeat, is they, you know, they got ridden. It's the same as they got humped. Um, I'm not sure either is necessarily the most eloquent way of expressing defeat. I think it's probably fine in conversation. 
as a point of principle, I'm not sure I'd write it down. I don't think I'll be bringing it into the commentary no. vernacular anytime no. soon. Well, but but, Everton but, are getting humped today. <laughs> but, but, but in this way, the, the reason that there was difficulty when uh, using the word humped was because it w- was describing England's 20 Latvia nil, yeah. and perhaps it wasn't quite uh, as oh, suitable for that particular situation. Sp- speaking of Steve's commentary, uh, one of your goals got on goal of the month. I know. Four years of waiting to get on goal of the month. Oh, Maxwell Cornet. Cornet. I've had some bangers that have missed out, which I've taken very, very personally, including a brilliant James Madison goal for Leicester a couple of seasons ago. But finally... Are you in some way regretful... Hashtag vote wire. (laughs) Are you in some way regretful that that the word that you chose to to celebrate that moment and which will go down in posterity as your initial contribution of to goal of the month was just wow <laughs> i felt it summed up the moment perfectly <laughs> wow comma he humped it um <laughs> to be fair it was a it was a wow goal it was a wow goal and also when nothing else is necessary just let yes. the pictures tell the story exactly no it's just i was okay. i was sort of idly watching match of the day too and uh, and suddenly i had steve shouting wow at me <laughs> <laughs> there was a, an unnecessary partridge bent to that particular <laughs> retelling of the story. Anyway, correspondence of um, any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So this week and next week, we will be responding, hopefully at a length that suggests thoughtfulness, to topic suggestions from listeners. A little present to individuals for the holiday season, perhaps. Again, necessity-induced content generation dressed up as a feature. So here is Charles Shipman, who writes from New Hampshire. Dear RZA, GZA, Method Man and Old Dirty Bastard. Which I'm sure you all know. We've as, had Wu-Tang before. Yes, we? I was going to say, as, as white men in 30s and 40s, you'll appreciate his Wu-Tang clan. I've only become a football fan in the last few years, and your podcast has been both entertaining and enlightening. But as a fan, I've hit a wall, and I hope that you can help me. I keep hearing various experts talk about teams that have an identity or know what they're about. I hear about teams that have a philosophy or an approach to the game versus other teams that lack an identity or don't seem to have a plan. As an untutored observer, it seems like the teams that have an identity, there are a lot of uh, inverted commas here, which I hope you appreciate my change in tone to, to, to suggest which is uh, within those said quotation marks, are just the teams that have been winning lately and the teams that don't have a plan are the ones that have been losing. Surely there's more to it than that. What's frustrating is I never hear analysts or announcers actually explain the various philosophies in any detail. I get that some teams are very aggressive and try to put the other team on the back foot, while others play more defensively and try to look for chances to score off the opponent's mistakes. Yes, I sort of vaguely know about tiki-taka and gagan pressing and counter-attacking, but hearing pundits throw out these terms with no further explanation doesn't really help me understand them in a meaningful way. So here is what I ask. Style of play. What does it mean? And perhaps you could take a successful team of your choice and explain in detail what their philosophy is. Also, if you could point me in the right direction to learn to see and appreciate the tactics of the game, I would be sincerely grateful. Your podcast is excellent and I will continue to listen no matter how little I understand football. He should say at the end of that sentence, even after this episode. Uh, Sincerely, Charles Shipman uh, from New Hampshire. Now, Charles, we could take a successful team of our choice and explain in detail what their philosophy is. We may well attempt to do that. We will not necessarily achieve that. But still, we will attempt to answer the question, style of play, what does it really mean? I'd, I'd immediately bat back at Charles, who being from where he is in the United States, I would imagine is a keen follower of American football and understands that game intimately. I feel exactly the same when I occasionally flick over and watch some NFL to try and 
find out what it is about it that so fascinates you. And mm. I constantly hear terms like play action being thrown out or describing the routes that runners are taking or what's happening at the line of scrimmage. It all flies over my head in exactly the same way. But unlike Charles, I have absolutely no desire to discover exactly what they're talking about and just flick over and watch the badminton or the squash on another channel. I mean, there's a lot of philosophies in squash. Some people will hit it really hard. Other people will hit it slightly less hard. The Yeah, it's all, that, it's all philosophies. Go. That's the nuance. I think, so so I think a, lot of it, a lot of it is stuff that you, that you pick up as you're going along. Yeah. And it would be very difficult as, as part of any sort of radio or television broadcast or any newspaper article to explain the definition of the terminology you're using constantly. You wouldn't have space or time for anything else. So, so I think... Charles has probably hit upon something that is basically true, which is that we do, as fans, not even just as media, but as fans, probably talk about things like style of play and philosophies in a very kind of generic, unspecific way, to the extent that they really don't mean anything. Most teams try and play... Yeah, you'll get teams that are defensive in certain situations, but not defensive in others. There are a few teams who have very defined, very like immediately identifiable philosophy. So Leeds' philosophy mm. is very clearly man-to-man marking all over the pitch, all action, passing forwards rather than sideways. They don't waste time in possession. They they get the ball and they go. There's that's you know Leeds' philosophy is really is really apparent whenever you watch them. Uh, I think a lot of other teams, certainly higher up probably have a much more kind of fluid philosophy. So Liverpool have this reputation as being, people still talk about heavy metal football nine years on since Klopp said it, and maybe more than nine, maybe 10 years on since Klopp said it. You'd have a real job describing Liverpool as a heavy metal team in that sense now. They're not in any way. Liverpool at times will will have that sort of suicidal high press. They'll swarm opposition, They'll they'll sort of rampage forwards. Quite a lot of the time, Liverpool keep the ball, knock mm. it around, try and work an opening. There's no, they, they they play long a bit more than they play short. I think Liverpool they probably play a bit longer than most yeah. most top class teams. But I wouldn't. I th- you'd have a real job describing them as a as a long ball team. That's not what they do. But um, what you've what you've sort of drilled down to there, Rory, is this thing of like buzzwords. They just stick with people. Yeah. And Klopp mentions heavy metal football, and it just just becomes a thing. And uh, and in general, we just can't let it go. We obsess about it because it come, it becomes part of the way we talk about football. And even if things move beyond that, that we seem incapable of relinquishing that terminology because it just seems, it, it sounds great. Yes, exactly. And it's, it, it is a, a problem and something I imagine all of us, probably not Rory, has subscribed to in the past badly that we are particularly superficial about these things because we don't either spend the time or... If we do, we don't understand exactly what those the second and third paragraph is. So we just stick to the one thing that we've heard, and that's why they've become buzzwords, and that's why they're superficial sometimes, and that's why they stick. So I think it's it's partly that it's partly just because it, you know heavy metal football is a great phrase in the same way as the special one is a great phrase. And and if you think about you know Mourinho says that as a throw throwaway line in a press conference in 2000, 2004, and twen- almost twenty years on, the something one. Yeah. is now like a staple of all football coverage and it's mental because it doesn't you know the I'm the happy one I'm the norm Klopp was the normal one and it's this kind of 
fund like fundamental thing of every new manager press conference which one are you like like all of these people are friends episodes it's i mean it is it's nuts that that sim what is not a, even a particularly clever line no offense i mean it's not I'm not having a digit Mourinho, but it's not even a particularly clever line has become such a kind of oh, he said the special one remember remember how he said that um you're the, not special anymore exactly yeah, yeah yeah and it's it's this this amazing thing that's kind of caught on and we do fixate on these things and that's you know that's partly the media it's partly the nature of fans but i think the other thing that does that it comes back to and i've had this conversation a lot recently is is that we don't necessarily as outsiders i don't want to say we don't understand what what's happening on the pitch as that's not entirely true but i think we don't understand nearly as much as we think we do hmm. And so we have to kind of fit teams into pigeonholes effectively mm. so that we can comprehend what they're doing. And the, the context I was thinking of it in is, is what's good football? Because good football can be passing football or it can be counter-attacking football or it can be long ball football. It can all be good. It can all, it can all be good to watch. And largely what makes it good to watch is if you're emotionally invested in it. The, you know, what makes the Premier League's actual product more compelling than Serie A other than its production values. Quite hard to tell because Serie A has loads of goals in it at the moment, yeah. probably more than more than the Premier League, although I've not done it's, the research. But it's I suspect it does. Serie A is brilliant this season. It's really, it, really good. At, at least in part, that's because quite a lot of the players aren't that good. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you had, a, had a lead full of, this is a clue to what I'm writing this week, if you had a lead full of Manchester Cities, the technical level would be extraordinary, but I bet it'd be quite boring. Mm. And that's that's ultimately. I thought I went to Man United Arsenal last week, and it was a great game in one sense because it was really entertaining. But it was a terrible game in another. They're both quite bad at football. They're not. They're not. It's not watching Barca 2011 against Barca, Barca 2009. It's watching two basically quite mid-table teams make a load of mistakes. And I think that the the desire to to easily pigeonhole teams into into kind of philosophies is is part of an attempt to understand in broad terms roughly what they do. So Man City passed the ball, but that's not true either because City, you know, the, if you look at the Bernardo Silva goal against Villa, that is a counter-attack that, that Liverpool would be proud of, beyond proud of. That would be kind of, that's probably Liverpool's ideal goal that Man City scored. Equally, Liverpool will quite often score goals that are distinctly Manchester City because they'll work their way through, they'll work the opening and there's the pass, there's the goal. And I think we we do that because it's a way of understanding in broad, yeah, in the broadest possible terms, what teams are trying to do. We talked a little bit about it in response to a question about playbooks recently on another episode, didn't we? And I do think that if, if you're, if you're relatively new to soccer, and even if you're not, it's on the face of it, a fairly organic sport compared to others that have continuous reset moments. And especially, you know, Charles watching on from North America, it will be used to sports with with a, with a structure and a very off very obvious moments in where play resumes or there's a, a change in momentum or in a change in in approach, and and soccer isn't really like that. It's fairly fluid. So to hear sort of buzzword terminology dropped in over the top of something that seems to be moving quite organically perhaps can seem a bit incongruous. And I can understand why that would be confusing. And I also, I, I get frustrated. I think we obsess about it too much, even from, from a point of view of regular watches. It's, it's that thing of when the team news drops and there becomes this sudden conversation, you know, around the press box. What, what formation are they going to play? Is it, is it going to be, you know, is it going to be 4-4-2 or are they going to play three at the back and wing back? 
ultimately we're going to discover that when the game starts so it's not vitally important the hour before the game and secondly is it the most important thing about how this game is going to pan out where if we scribbled names down on a piece of paper where where those players starting positions are going to be it, it feels more about approach tactics players ability rising to the occasion delivering when required than some of these little facets that we become obsessed with drilling down into. Well, yeah, and if you look at formations particularly, you you can name a formation, you can play 4-3-3 in a million different ways. It doesn't, mm. knowing that they're going to line up as a 4-3-3 doesn't really tell you what they're going to try and do with it. So it, you, you can play a 4-3-3. There was a great bit of analysis from, from a game the other day where if you push the fullbacks on, you create an overload on the in the wide areas and then the team that, that, it, was, that it was applied to, which I think was Aston Villa, took the lead and then the fullbacks didn't push on anymore. They're playing the same formation. They were playing them in completely different mm. ways. They were they played wide in the first half until they scored, and then they played narrow in the second, and they still create still created chances. It wasn't defensive or attacking. Teams as a rule are defensive when they don't have the ball, and attacking when they have it. That's the general rule. The um, and I think we, it's 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 a way of trying to broadly, yeah, broad brushstrokes understand what what's about to what's happening in front of us or what's about to happen. It's. It's, I guess, a way of grasping hmm. at kind of an ability to kind of envisage the game as it's about to be played. Almost, that's what, yeah. what the obsession with tactics and, and and that's not to say that they're not valid. I'm not, I'm not saying that teams don't have tactics. Obviously, they do, but they can change within the course of the game. And it's at what point tactics become a philosophy. I'm not entirely sure, but just quite often, the bits of philosophy that we see are the bit we look at a game and we pick out the bits that subscribe to the philosophy that we have preordained and say, well, that bit is the philosophy rather than all the other stuff that maybe doesn't fit in with it. So, yeah, to use Liverpool as an example, we will watch the 20 minutes where they hammer forward and say, well, that's Klopp's philosophy. And we will ignore the 70 minutes when they <laughs> when they very patiently keep the ball because that doesn't fit with what we think. I thought it was when, I don't want to, I don't want to, criticise him because you know he's he's had a tough month but Solskjaer when he was at Manchester United talked a lot about United's kind of DNA and the type of football that Man United play and the the the, the virtues and the values of, of the Manchester United way but it was always extremely indistinct it was it was nothing detailed nothing firm nothing concrete it was kind of a broad sense of we we play attacking football but also counter-attacking football which are not this you know it's difficult to do this, those two things at the same time um and also you'd suggest that man united in the modern game can't play counter-attacking football because teams with you know with a handful of exceptions teams just set up to defend against manchester united as is their right um he kind of talked a bit about winners winners seem to be important but then he didn't play with traditional winners he'd play with inverted ones rashford, rashford and greenwood generally on the wrong on the non-natural side which is a, a modern approach but isn't playing with winners in the in the way that you know the the thirties nineteen ninety nine team did just that they had you know Ryan Giggs and David Beckham and their job was to bomb down the flanch and cross it, um, and I, I, it seemed to me that seemed to me a really kind of quite a good example of how football t talks about philosophy without really meaning anything by it. It's a, it's a general sense that watching Manchester United should be exciting, yeah. and the contrast to that that I thought was fascinating was. Stephen Gerrard did one of those interviews on Match of the Day a few weeks ago after he took the Villa job. And Gary Lineker asked him, what's your football philosophy? And the first thing that I thought was interesting was Gerrard didn't, as a lot of English managers do, dismiss it immediately as jargon. 
and it can no question it can be jargon but equally in any industry you have to talk to the jargon to get the jobs you need to mm. you need to be able to play the game a little bit even if you think it's bollocks you have to be able to sort of say well my philosophy is this because that's how people talk the people who are hiring you a you will need to talk like that to convince them and b will expect you to keep talking like that once you drop the job but it's 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 why on two different levels Sean Dyke, who was quite a sophisticated manager in a lot of ways, hasn't, I think, been given a lot of those opportunities is because the people who could have given him the bigger jobs than Burnley will have looked at it and thought, well, this guy doesn't have a philosophy. Does he keep saying that philosophy is bollocks and we need someone with a philosophy? And on a totally different level, I think it's why Max Allegri didn't get a job after Juventus because Allegri is very much, no, there's no such thing as philosophy. My job is is to come in, look at your players and see what works best. That's probably true, and I suspect that's what Rannick will do at United. But it's not necessarily going to get you a job because the people who are giving the jobs out want to know what your vision is, as they do in loads of industries. But is, Gerard- that, because, um, is that because, Rory, the people that uh, are hiring and firing have, have, been, have had their successes in other industries where they are familiar with the jargon? So that's effectively the language of business that they understand. So they expect to hear it within football where we have loads of those buzz phrases and buzzwords. Yeah, I think that I think that's probably a huge part of it. Yeah. That they there's jargon in loads of industries. There's, you know, corporate synergy and stuff like that is is that that is the language that the executives speak. If you tell them that all of that is complete nonsense, that they have you're giving them a choice. They can either believe that the you know, the way that they've lived their lives and the way that they've they've kind of worked in their profi- professional environment is built on complete nonsense, or they can think you're outdated. And I'm guessing that one of them is a much easier call to make than the other. Blue pill or red pill stuff. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah, yeah. But the so Gerard then said, Lenita asked him philosophy, and Gerard didn't immediately scotch it, which I thought was the the first interesting bit. But then he kind of said, he said, how long you got? And then he started talking about you know the spaces between players and the dis- getting the distances right and and all this quite kind of detailed stuff and it was the first time i'd ever i'd ever really thought about a manager's philosophy expressed in those very kind of algebraic terms that gerard's philosophy isn't like solskjaer's we have to play attacking football to gerard philosophy is obviously a very practical kind of actual firm thing and his philosophy is i mean I, i don't understand spaces and distances on football pitches but to gerard his philosophy is something that can basically be expressed as an equation and it's the, you know the the players have to be this distance between i want these distances between these players in these situations that's how he sees philosophy and that i think is almost the first time and it was only a couple of sentences but it's almost the first time i've ever heard a coach describe their philosophy in purely practical terms just even someone like Klopp or Guardiola who are big philosophers and Bielsa who's the ultimate philosopher would i don't think they'd do that i think they'd be like well you know i believe in in running or you know i believe in in vertical passing or whatever it it was to gerard it was very clearly like a like a granular thing that this is my philosophy and i thought that was that was fascinating and and also that he would eschew the chance to 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 describe his philosophy in a way that does meet those expectations from either above from the people hiring him or indeed below because fans and and one of Charles's questions was about identity fans I think like to have their club subscribe to an identity now whether it's away like the Manchester United philosophy if you like of to 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 attack and 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 it not necessarily being in practical terms or they're the arch philosophers who actually have a practical um 
application of their philosophical thoughts. Fans like to feel like their club has that. If they feel like their club doesn't have that, I think they jealously look at others that do, and then they want the manager who will be able to bring that to be their next manager. So there is an expectation for both above and below. Above, it might be corporate babble, but below, it's it's an identi- a desire for an identity that feels like their club has some sort of long-term direction. Well, it's that. That's what's crucial, and that's why philosophies have become... For all the jargon, and Steve's totally right that a lot of it is meaningless buzzwords, but for all, the, for all of that, the reason it's become popular is because it allows fans and executives a way to gauge what's happening at their club away from just results. So it's a way of... But if you have a defined philosophy, whether that's sort of Stokes, up and at them, kind of mm-hmm. in your face, long ball, direct, or Leeds is sort of supercharged, running around all the time, murder ball, or Man City's endless recital possession the if you have a a defined thing that you think your team is trying to do it's much easier to buy into that to say well this is what we do this is who we are this is what we stand for so it represents a set of values but it's also a way of assessing whether things are going well that's not just have we won and I think the managers who who have real problems are the ones who only have the results to go by because if you if if you've lost and you have no overarching philosophy, then you've lost. And people are like, well, you should have done this, this, and this. If you've lost, but you've played the way you want to play, you can say, well, look, I believe that this that this long-term will bring us better results. So yes, it hasn't worked today, but look at the way we went about it, and you can see the building blocks for the future. Or you can see that if we just correct this, this, and this, then we'll be better. And I think that is much easier for everyone involved in a club, from fans to executives, to, to kind of get get behind but also to understand it gives you a it gives you a framework by which you understand what is happening and whether it is going well or badly because if you're just if you're totally devoid of philosophy you're just reliant on the results and at some point the results might not be in your favor and yeah but it also gives you insurance against the the the, the results based kind of decision making that you just mentioned Rory so there there are situations i would imagine where managers see it as a benefit to at least have a philosophy or maybe even manufacture one so that they have this kind of force field around them that gives them a little bit more time if things are going uh, particularly badly or just not as well as they want it to. And and that, that kind of ensuring the self-preservation through philosophy can either be a completely legitimate thing because you want to give a manager enough time to be able to instill that philosophy and it might be in the long term something that benefits the club. But I also imagine there is a great cynicism amongst some managers who who try and drive a narrative about having a philosophy when in fact they don't have one just to give them that extra little bit of breathing space. So there are, I imagine, countless stories of managers who are very good at either manipulating or the media or driving a narrative through the media that allows them to be treated in a different way than perhaps those players who work for them feel they should be because they are seeing them on a daily basis and thinking he's talking about his philosophy to the media all the time and the media are reflecting that by saying oh he's got a philosophy you got to stick with him and yet they're on a date on the training ground on a daily basis going there's no philosophy he's he's just a, a disengaged rubbish manager so there's that kind of weird disconnect with those players who are actually subject to or should be subject to the philosophy that this manager supposedly has Something that, that, that was something that frustrated me about sort of the end of days for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when it felt as though if they had a good result, that was down to the players. And if it was, things didn't go well, that was, was down to the coach. And it felt as though, well, you have to have a, a, an ability to see 
through the perspective from both ends of, of that point of view, because Ole Gunnar Solskjaer must have done something right to get a good result if, if the bad result was his fault. And, and he must have done something on the training ground during the course of the week to inspire the players to, to give a good performance that week. Yes, you can question why that they weren't able to deliver that consistently. Do we put too great a stock in what a coach is or isn't able to do? And does that give players occasionally a free pass when they are playing below the level they should be able to achieve whoever is in charge? Because certainly Manchester United losing at Watford cannot simply be the responsibility, and which proved to be you know, the final game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. That simply cannot be just his fault. Surely the talent of player that Manchester United have at their disposal, they should be able to deliver a better performance than they did on that day. But that's because to an extent we've, we have become obsessed with managers over players. Yeah. We, football is now treated as, I don't know who said it the other day, but there was a coach who said ultimately football is a player's sport, not a manager's sport. It might have been Randnick. Um But we have become obsessed with managers. And... That's always but that's partly all... a manager's fault, and that goes back to your your epithets, your your heavy metal football. You're the special one. That's partly because they have decided, and I appreciate it's it, they're not completely responsible for the re- reaction they get to these things, but they are partly responsible for self-aggrandizing by yeah. giving themselves this this godfather-like status, whether yeah. they intend to or not. Two and yeah, that's a factor. I think there's other stuff that's gone into it. in In England, in particular, there's always been a call to the manager, right back to Shantley and Busby, um, and that. Well, in fact, beyond that, Herbert Chapman and people like that. There's always been a cult of the the managers that. There's like fo- football really subscribes to the great man theory of history. It's the one area in which we genuinely seem to believe that that is that is true. That they're the only forces that shape things. And if you look at, I suppose actually I've not thought of this before, so forgive me as I freewheel. But if you look at City that will be recorded in history as an example of of what happens when you have a great man in charge, that it will all, all go down as Pep Guardiola's magnificent Manchester City. A Marxist interpretation of football history would tell you that it's the greater economic forces. Now, in that case, I would suggest that the Marxist interpretation might be right, that it's the, the movement of capital uh, into Manchester City from Abu Dhabi that has defined the success of that particular regime, because Guardiola himself has said he could not play this football with Rochdale's squad. And that's that's self-evident. Um, he needs all those good players to to play the way he does. And that's fine. That's not a criticism. Doesn't doesn't um, diminish his legacy or his ability or his genius or how good City are. But it's a fairly obvious fact. Um, I think the managers have themselves bought in. They've leaned into the impression that they have complete omnipotent control. I think partly it's a structural thing that because managers are easier to change, we therefore imbue them from the outside with greater culpability for things going wrong, which has the kind of converse of they then get more credit when things go right. I think to an extent it's a practical thing that the media gets to talk to the managers and therefore it's in our, it's in our interest to, to make it seem as though we we are speaking to the the, the one person who really matters. I think I understand all the reasons why it is. And that was some very impressive freewheeling, by the way, (laughs) Rory. Didn't expect you to do the old Marxism, but still. No, no, Next time, you know, think about Marxism. You're a man of many layers. (laughs) I know, you might have to to listen back and uh, take this all down. I I understand all the reasons for it, but it it doesn't stop it being absurd. And it it doesn't stop it being incredible that we've allowed it to get to that stage where certain, certain 
cogs in the machine uh, are forgiven for their failures just so that we can concentrate on on one that maybe has a few more obvious faults but that gets, so that gets back to the fact that there is a level of complication to football that i think is is difficult yeah. for, for outsiders to understand so if you think about mistakes i think tiago silva said the other day that individual mistakes aren't individual mistakes just they invariably mean that somebody else has done something wrong yeah and there was a piece of analysis that somebody did at arsenal that they did at arsenal a few years ago where they were trying to work out why Andre Santos made so many errors leading to goals and they worked out that it, it, it was partly his own inability, but it was also partly like the structural failure that led to him being exposed. Mm. That's, that is all true, but at the same time, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of football which is pointing at someone and shouting, you're shit, why do you keep yeah. doing that? And the, the, I think the, the manager maybe bridges the gap. So it's really hard for all of us to watch football and... Concede, see our team conceded on and be like, well, you know, the uh, I think what's happened there is that the number six hasn't covered his zone, isn't it? And that's what's exposed the number four. And uh, it's a Millwall fan who's complaining. <laughs> I thought it was just Tim and Sherwood. The, um, it, could be, it could be Tim Sherwood. Let's do Tim Sherwood. I think you were, you know, a, little bit too, you were a little bit more North <laughs> London than South what, London. What they've, what they've done there is they've got Hertfordshire. They've got the blocking, you know, they've got the blocking and that's allowed the free run from the two to overpower the number three. And he's just been exposed on the far part. It's the same way, to be fair, the basic example of it is that whenever a goal is done, we talked about this with, with Chinch, we're also trying to work out whose fault it is. As, I mean, the, there is that great yeah. quote from the person whose name I always forget, who was the inter-manager in the 30s, that the perfect game ends nil-nil. And that that's probably true to an extent. But that doesn't mean that every single time a goal is scored, we have to be like, well, it's that guy's fault. Yeah. We could just be like, well, that's a, that's a really good goal. Like, they've worked that brilliantly. The... Um, I'm using really recent examples, which doesn't help us. But the the Liverpool goal against Wolves at the, at yeah, the, yeah. the, the other week, let's pretend it wasn't on Saturday, the other <laughs> week, which was a, a, a long ball Van Dijk, brilliant touch from Salah, takes Keanu Hoover out of the game, cuts it back for Origi, Origi spins and scores. There was an attempt there to say, you know, Hoover, who's a young defender, had been caught ball watching. But he hadn't really. What happened was that it was a great pass from Van Dijk and Salah's touch was superb and it created the half a yard of space that is that a world-class attacker needs to operate in. Hoover didn't really make any mistakes. There was nothing he could have done beyond being 30 feet tall that would have cut that goal out. You could but, say that he'd been brainwashed as a former Liverpool player. Possibly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to switch off that, that Jurgen yeah. Klopp had pressed a special button on his watch, which meant that... Hoover at the vital moment zoned out. Yeah, possibly. But it was, you know, it's, it, it, there's probably a split second of hesitation, but it's not, it, it's not really a mistake. It's just, it's just a, it's a well-worked goal. It's an attack that it's a very, it's a very kind of uh, blueprinty Liverpool attack, but it's just a well-worked goal. And it came late, it was dramatic. And they, they, they were lucky to an extent to, to, that, it, that it arrived at all. But just Wolves had defended brilliantly, but it, there was no real reason to blame Hoover for it. It wasn't his fault. It was just a thing that happened. And I think we we do, we do want to be able to attribute responsibility to people, but, but we have an understanding that sometimes the failures are collective and the manager stands in for that collective failure. Sorry for making uh, Jurgen Klopp sound like the baddie from the naked gun there for a moment. <laughs> We've we've had a slight reference to Anchorman's and the Naked Gun is, is very welcome on this podcast. Uh, but that, that funnily enough, brings me to, to what will make the final point, which is that, and, and it goes back to what Steve was saying about the fact that, that, that American sport is play by play by play by play. But still, the similarity between the two is that you, you have a team with a style of play, but it's hard to define that style of play sometimes because there is always another team on that pitch. Now, that pitch might 
that team might also have a style of play and there might be a clash of styles and it might be really interesting to see who comes out on top but generally you don't have a style of play in a vacuum because that other team is trying to stop you they might be understanding of your style of play they might know exactly how you're going to do it and therefore they might game plan to try and negate that style but it is hard to try and illustrate at least non-vocally using football not words what a style of play is because you then go and watch that team it may well be manchester city against liverpool and liverpool know how to stop manchester city manchester city may well know how to try and defeat liverpool's style of play but you will not see the distilled perfect version of those styles in that match because there is another team on the field and that is often the most engaging and interesting part of a sporting contest is when you get those two groups of players and above it the manager who may or may not have a philosophy attempting to beat the other and it may well be no great expression of their philosophies or styles but it will still be interesting i would definitely say the most interesting aspect of sport is the fact that there's two teams on the pitch definitely it would it would be very boring if there was just one (laughs) but yeah no i mean i suppose it's the it's the interplay between between what they're trying to do that creates the tension but yeah you're right you never get you you never get to see the philosophies in isolation really the, and the, then you run into the, the the issue of the myth of agency, which is that fans fans always believe that their team is the one that's in control of what's happening. So if they win, it's just of their virtue, and if they if they lose, it's because of their flaws. And increasingly, I think what 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 happens in the in the media, the way that football is presented, is that we attribute the bid team, the bidder team, as the one with the agency. I suspect if a long time ago it was it was the home team that was the yeah. one with the agency, that the away team was expected to react to what the home team did, and that has now shifted. We assume that when Manchester United go away to Watford, that what happens will be a reflection of Manchester United, yeah. not Watford. The Watford are a blank canvas that United will paint themselves on effectively, and that can either yeah, be a yeah, nice yeah. picture or it can be a bad picture. It doesn't work like that, not really, because the the, the gradations between the players and the managers mm-hmm. are so fine that if Watford have a really good day, they can beat Manchester United. Manchester United, in, I mean, it's a poor example because United were quite bad that day, but it's not necessarily the case that if United go to Watford and play well, that they will win because Watford might play better. It was interesting at the weekend after Manchester City's trip to Watford that the first 45 minutes of Manchester City's performance was was lauded for what they were able to do. But it wasn't necessarily, even though they did retain possession and they did create chances playing the way that you would expect them to, as you mentioned earlier on, Rory, the Bernardo Silva goal was not how you would describe a Manchester City philosopher, philosophical goal to be scored. So even in that version, which was described as being, this is the best version of Manchester City, this is exactly what they can do, this is how good they are. In amongst that, a feature event was completely contrary to what you would expect them to do. Um, Charles, I hope that has helped. I don't think it has, mm, I but it I, hope, I hope it has. It's helped us because it was content. We filled an hour. <laughs> and, and also, apparently, it's partly what Rory's going to write this week. So and that's, that's all we care about. All I care about is using this as a workshop for my newsletter. <laughs> and we, we await it with great interest. Uh, keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com or indeed rory at nytimes.com. Is that right? Is that the right email address? No. Your, no. What is it? <laughs> Ask Rory. Ask Rory at, at nytimes.com. nytimes.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. And once again, uh, we do thank you for your understanding regarding the postponement of the live show. We hope it frees up your Christmas social calendar. Perhaps it does. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I, I must have, I'm, a, I'm like a goldfish with your, uh, with your email, by the way, Rory. Because it pings, I'm always working when it drops because it's Friday afternoon, I'm getting my prep ready for the weekend. 
ping email from Rory. And without fail, every Friday I go, oh, that's odd. I wonder what Rory wants. He's sending me an email. <laughs> with, without fail, every week. It's the stupidest thing I do on a regular basis. Well, particularly particularly because you should know by now that I, I carry out literally all of my correspondence through WhatsApp. It's how I talk to Kate. Have you ever emailed your wife? No. I, I, I will do nothing but WhatsApp people. I, I, pass- I, I, I slightly resent having to send emails for work. I want people to just, just to WhatsApp me. I, I slightly passively aggressively forward things to Katie on email, but we don't sort of we don't communicate no. directly that way. Dear Katie, yes, hope you're well. <laughs> but, um, if, if, you, um, if you are a listener who also wants to contribute to Rory's newsletter, uh, his number is plus four four oh seven.